Hello. Let's go for a ride. Here we are. Ninth story. <laughs> Prologue. The wind ripped through the trees, driving hard, stinging pellets that bit the flesh and frosted the eyelashes. They were deep in the woods now, and the dark brown bark of the tree trunks and the vibrant dark green of their boughs contrasted with the aluminum gray sky and the crusted sugar white of the ground. My, my God, sputtered Gary. If we stay out here much longer, my eyes are going to freeze shut. Harry grunted. I know what you mean, he was shouting at the top of his voice, but the wind ripped his words away as soon as he uttered them. It was a good thing they were only a foot apart. Gary was happy to be wearing his bunny hug under his parka, but it wasn't enough. I'm so cold I can't even feel the ice on my face anymore, said Gary stutteringly. Harry looked down at the GPS in his gloved hand and felt his heart sink. We're hosed. This fucking thing's had the biscuit, he shouted angrily, smacking the side of the vice several times, which failed to improve its operation. Gary couldn't believe how the storm came out of nowhere. For not the first or last time that day, he wished he was far away, maybe sitting in a Timmy hose with a hot double-double and a nice fresh Bismarck. He turned and looked back at his companion, Harry. Harry was exactly six feet tall and had long, sandy blonde hair that hung to his shoulders when it wasn't tucked into a toque like it was now. His eyes were exactly the same leaden gray color that Gary associated with the sea off Nova Scotia in the winter. Not that you often got to see those eyes. Harry was sensitive to bright lights, so he normally wore very dark, round sunglasses that reminded Gary of John Lennon. In fact, Gary realized, Harry looked a lot like John did during the end of the Beatles when the musician and Yoko were hanging out in bags and lounging around in hotel beds. He yelled back to Harry, Hey, I think there's a clearing up ahead. Maybe we can get our bearings. After five more strides, they stepped out from the tree line. Suddenly, all hell broke loose. Chapter 1. The Lodge the day started out with the smell of sage, sausage, good coffee, and butter. Gary smiled as he slowly opened his eyes and looked at the rich chocolate brown drapes blocking out the brightest of the early morning sun. Waking up to the smell of breakfast being made was one of the most comforting things he could imagine. Still warm and drowsy with the anticipation of something delicious soon to be eaten. He rose from the top bunk, Harriet insisted on the bottom one, and climbed down the ladder. He walked into the hall, then down to the end where the bathroom waited. He stepped in and walked first to the mirror to check his eyes and the stubble on his cheeks. Today was the day of the big hike. Because of this, he chose to leave the stubble since he was sure it made him look more manly. He ran the water in the sink, letting it get nice and steaming hot. He took out a washcloth and tossed it into the basin so it would get hot and wet. He'd love to let it rest on his face as he sipped his first cup of coffee and tried to remember his dream. Bravo, Daniel. And welcome, listeners. To episode five. Those of you that are still with us that made it through that dribble. <laughs> that is deliberately dribble, by the way. That is actually deliberate dribble and a fantastic work that Mr. Foydick threw together uh, to break every rule. Every single one. Of Elmore Leonard's 
10 Rules of Writing. Uh, listeners of the program may recognize Elmore Leonard as uh, the recently deceased Elmore Leonard, I guess yes, we should say. the late great. Uh, we lost Leonard uh, over the summer, um, and Elmore was, uh, well, listen to me, I'm talking like he was my <laughs> uncle. Yeah, Uncle uh, Elmore. I, I just refer to him as Leonard, uh, and then, uh, or I call him Elmore. Yeah. Whichever. Mr. Answer Leonard. Elmore, he would answer to both. I don't know the gentleman, but knowing his work, um, I think he would. I think he would. Yeah. He'd probably call me a fucker, <laughs> um, but I think he I think he would respond. That's, um, that's the weird thing about writers and actors. When you watch a great movie, or you watch a lot of great movies by your favorite actor, it's you been read a long a lot time of since I've seen a great movie, by the way. Anyway. <laughs> you, you come to feel like you know them, yeah. which is a weird sort of... Well, well, you know what, though? You've had the privilege. I mean, you're a huge fan of Neil Gaiman. Yeah. He's a huge influence on you. I know this. Um, and you had the privilege of meeting him. Yeah. Uh, having conversation with him uh, mm-hmm. and getting your picture taken with him. Yeah. Um, again, I'm, I'm still not entarily sure that wasn't a cutout <laughs> of Gaiman. Uh, but it's I've the seen lighting. the lighting. I've seen the pictures, you know, you know. It's the lighting, man. It's more believable than that photo of Oswald um, <laughs> with the shadow going one way and his head bigger than his body. But Back yeah, into the light. Right. I'm, I'm pretty sure you did meet Neil Gaiman. But, yeah. um, it, but anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. It has to be weird. As, I mean, an author that's you're enjoying or uh, an actor that you've enjoyed their work it creates this sense of intimacy where you feel like you know the person and that has to be weird as a published writer um as a well-known actor to just have someone come up to you like they know you i think that's you know people forget you know them because they've shared their stuff with you but they don't know you yeah and and that's a great point i think the thing that makes it sometimes weird is that as you just stated there very nicely, I know them and we think that we're very closely associated with them. It gets a lot more weird when you have somebody like Elmar Leonard who has been dead for three months and I'm still talking to him. Yeah. <laughs> That's when you really cross the line. I mean, if, he, if you're, if you see him at like a book signing or yeah. something like that, or if you're, you know, you're lucky enough to be on the red carpet, or, you know, at a premiere when an actor's walking by and you're like, Hey, Mr. Pitt, and I, I'm a big fan. Yeah. But when they've been entombed for several months and you're still acting like they're right there with you. Down the street. Yeah, that's all. Hanging out, having a beer. But but it's a great point. Uh, And I would suspect that to be the case. But I think that's, you know, that's a stereotype that I attach to all the the British. I just assume that most of them are, you know, they're well-mannered. Elmore Leonard, though, on the other hand... um, you know, you're, He's a little crotchety, huh? Well, it see, it see, he sure seems like it, doesn't he? You know what I mean? Like, if you if you you, you read his works, um, and as I was saying there, you know, there's there's a lot of Quentin Tarantino films that have come from Elmore Leonard. Tarantino has acknowledged that he's a huge fan of Elmore Leonard. In Tarantino-esque films, like Get Shorty, obviously, um, Out of Sight, and Rum Punch. I haven't is seen it? Rum Punch yet. Is it well, good? Rum Punch is actually Jackie Brown. Rum Punch was... Oh, the, that's the book that Jackie Brown was based on. That's okay. right. That's what right. am I thinking of? Yeah. I'm thinking of... Um, Are you thinking of the Rum Diaries with yes, Johnny Depp? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's the it's um, based on HST, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Well, it's Johnny Hunter Depp. Hunter so Why not? I mean, he's that's pretty much what he does these days. He's If he's not playing Jack Sparrow, <laughs> he's doing something that's... He's no longer Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> right. And, he, and he's probably not going to be Tonto again, either. <laughs> oh, um, God. Thank God for that. Please. But, but if he's not Jack Sparrow, again. he's he's indulging himself by doing something Hunter S. Thompson related. Yeah. yeah. Which is good for him. You're a big fan of Hunter S. Thompson. I am. And there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So the opening to the show Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> the the opening to the show was uh was Dan's wonderful reading of 
his short work of fiction, which will never be finished, which will it's never done. be finished. Well, actually, it is finished. It's done. That's yeah, that's that's, that's, that's it. That's actually it that's is right. going to the grave. That's right. Cut and print. It's done. It's it's right. No more. <laughs> right. There there will be no matter how many listener emails, phone calls, tweets. That's right. We get begging for the rest of the story. I'm sorry, folks. You're not going to find out what happened to Gary. No. He, <laughs> Gary and Harry. We're <laughs> <laughs> with their toque. <laughs> right. When, who knows? All we're going to know about that day is that they, they awoke to the smell of sage sausage and coffee and butter. Yeah. <laughs> butter. So, again, no matter how much no matter how much your fans, your denizens of fans reach out to you, that you will you will not comply with their wishes. You no. will not oblige them. You will not. I could rewrite the entire thing and actually do it right. Absolutely. Th- that, that I might be willing to do, but I, I won't uh, continue along this demonstration of how to not write <laughs> or, or 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 i guess the thing is how to not write to appease mr elmore Leonard. that's right 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 because he's rolling around he is you, you just you just upset him deeply yeah um with your example of what not to do here yes um and for everyone who is listening what we're referring to is elmore leonard's 10 rules of writing we should have like a catchy jingle that goes along with that. We we should. And Elmore we, Renner, oh, ten rules see, of right. It it just Elmore lends it. It does lend itself to <laughs> if, if uh, Paul Paul Schaefer he he'd come yeah. up with something. Hey Paul, quickly. Yes, and, and they would throw that. Play right us a little ditty. Right, Paul Paul Schaefer in the world's most dangerous man would come up with a very catchy ditty to talk about. Elmore Leonard's ten 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 rules of writing. There you go. There you go. Number one. <laughs> From Number the home one. office in Des Moines. <laughs> Never open a book with weather. So Which I did, I think, open it with you, weather. You right? absolutely did. You absolutely started your book the off. The wind ripped through the trees. That's right. And so many books. And before we get too much into that, were you surprised to hear a well-known, well-published, well-respected, admired author like Elmore Leonard, put down some of these rules. Because I was. A lot of that happens. A lot of what he's doing is probably his pet peeves. Yeah. I mean, some of these are really good. Yeah. But I think some of these are probably his pet peeves. And it goes back to one of the first things that I remember learning about writing from one of my uh, my favorite teachers. One of the things she said was avoid cliches. And a lot of these things are cliches because yeah. they've been done so many times. There's nothing new under the sun, which is a cliche hey now. <laughs> in and of itself, but you want to try to avoid things that are devices that have been done over and over and over again, because unless you're you're dealing with a brand new reader, which means a child or someone that's not <laughs> been exposed to writing or, or movies before, you've seen these all done a million times. That's I mean, right. how many books start with, it was a dark and stormy night, that, that, essentially. That's, that's right. That's right. Number two, avoid prologues. Which is why I started with prologue. Which, which is why you absolutely opened up with a prologue. That's right. Uh, so you're two for two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You opened with weather and you opened with weather in your prologue. Well, Prologues are funny, though. Well because done. I've, I've had a couple. I've read a couple. Uh, more than a couple. I've read I've read several books that have prologues. I've I've seen it done done well a few times. Mm-hmm. The idea is you start where the action is. By talking about a prologue, you're doing something before the action starts. It's it's almost like, wait, my story hasn't started yet, but you need to get this information first, and then I'm going to tell you the story. And it's interesting. I mean, Elmore Leonard 
didn't put these things out like a top 10 list. No. There are obviously 10 rules of writing. And he doesn't go into too much detail, but if you're interested, the book is out. It's the fourth book I have uh, that I've mentioned <laughs> uh, throughout episodes four and five. I do have the book in hardcover. Dan has been able to find these on online. You can go to them if you're interested. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. There's, it's on slate.com, but they have a, a list of the 10 rules of writing. And they go into a little more detail. And in other words, he gives some caveats. That's he's right. Like, he's like, well, don't do this unless. Uh, right. Don't do this. But if you, you can, can do this, right. you can do that. Don't do this. And here's why you shouldn't. Or if you can do it this way, or if you can do it well. And here's my definition of well. Again, it's like everything else. This is Elmore Leonard's kind of. His preference. Right. He, my preferences. Right. Right. But I think you make a great point. Um, and the thing about the prologue is, and, I, and I've given this some thought. Uh, since we started contemplating this as a topic for the show. And, and I'm kind of conflicted on it. I think uh, the prologue, I think I always used to just kind of give it a pass. I don't need you to tell me it's a prologue. It's the first thing I'm reading. <laughs> so I don't generally pick up a book and start it in chapter seven. Yeah. So in prologue, and, and I think that maybe that's where he's going with it too. I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but it's like, well, any numbnuts who's picking up that book, to your point, unless yeah. it's a child who's reading a book for the first time. Yeah understands the basic concept of going from page one to the last page of the book and they understand that the first thing that's happening you don't necessarily need to tell them this predates everything else that's happening yeah. well of course it does well your prologue <laughs> usually occurs out of sequence in time with the rest of the story right right um usually and i broke this rule too usually a prologue is something that occurs before the main action of the story mm -hmm. and if, if you haven't figured it out my prologue actually is taking place well after what i call chapter one yeah and um, we should point out that prologue comes from the latin before trees Seriously? No, no, I'm, no, <laughs> absolutely not. I made that up, but I said it so convincingly, you know, a log being wood and pro being, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't even mean before pre would mean before, but anyway, it's that's a not, professional log. There, there you go. Never use a verb other than said to carry dialogue. See now that, so some examples that you in your work sputtered Gary, which was a favorite of yeah. mine. Again, when, when, when I read your draft here, <laughs> I actually, you know, laughed out loud. Were you drinking um, coffee? Did you sputter? I, I did. I was drinking coffee. Um, I don't know if I'd qualify it as a sputter. Um, <laughs> it was something, but I, I wouldn't qualify it as anything because we'll get to that rule and Elmore Leonard would smack me upside the head with the business end of a rifle if, yeah. uh, if, I, if I used another adverb. I, I thought that one was interesting because I see that all the time. Yeah. And even in my own writing, I'm always trying. But but I think, again, I, I get the point that Leonard's trying to make. It's like, why why try to outsmart yourself? Why mm -hmm. try to outsmart your audience? Just say said because you start getting in the way of the dialogue. You're Correct. the writer. And that's really what he's saying. If Dan said it, then that's all you need to say. Right. And if I say my, my, my then right. I, you know I sputtered. That's you know right. I stuttered. I don't have to tell you that I did it. Right, exactly. If I have to tell you that I did it, then I'm carrying the dot. Yeah, you're smart enough to know what the characters do. Or they should be. And if you're yeah. not smart enough, then don't fucking read Dan's stuff. Okay? <laughs> now, I'm, I'm admon you know, that's not, that's one of Craig's rules of reading. Yes. <clears throat> and one of my, you know, one of my rules of podcast hosting is don't admonish your audience, which, right. which I'm doing and I, I just broke it. But, yeah. But you get it. He yelled back to Harry. Yes. See, now that's not said, but I'm 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 almost okay with yelled, because then I don't have to throw exclamation points in, which is another rule. But but I think here's the thing. Here's what's different, and 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 you make a fine point there. 
would you qualify that as dialogue? See, I think that's where you're allowed to do it because that's different. You're still using a tag. If, if you and I are having, said, if we're sitting at a table yeah. having dialogue, or we don't have to be sitting at a table, we could be anywhere. It's understood that it's a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you might occasionally go whispered, Dan, which yeah. I think is okay. Yeah, that, you know, because you don't, because without saying to, you whispered, right. you can't tell that somebody's whispering. That's something. exactly right. So I think. Elmore Leonard is using the fumble rule and I'll go into the fumble rule here a a little bit because that's that's why I think this is I think his book is enlightening in that regard and it's a mechanism for teaching people yes how to how to not do things yes anyway yeah we'll Um, skip to uh, the exclamation points since I mentioned exclamation points now of course when you're reading something to an audience they don't know that you used exclamation points but if you go to the show notes I will include a copy of this and I certainly used well more than my share of exclamation <laughs> points i used exclamation points like a 10 year old girl uses exclamation points yes yeah you yeah exactly you sure did that that's that's great and, and i don't remember in the book i took the 10 rules from that and you looked at them online right does he use a fumble rule there by saying keep your exclamation points under control three exclamation points at the end of it um what does he say about that that is what rule number five right it's rule five Keep your exclamation points under control. You're allowed no more than two or three per 100,000 words which, of prose. Which I think is incredibly witty. That's If you have uh, a knack for playing with exclaimers the way Tom Wolf does, you can throw them in by the handful. Right. While we're going through this and we're talking about it, you know, maybe Dan and I sound like, hey, and we're hoity-toity and we're, you know, it sounds like Elmer Leonard is, hey, my shit don't stink. He is very complimentary of writers who do it well. Yes. We, I, we should point that out. And, and again, writing is all about craft and style and whatnot. So everybody's absolutely allowed to do yes. their thing. But I think these are great guidelines. They're not hard, fast rules. I know that even just in the week that yeah. has passed that I've become familiar with Elmore Leonard's 10 Rules of Writing, it has... It has actually influenced my writing style dramatically. Once you're aware of things, they stick out. Yeah. <laughs> hey, now. Ba-boom. Never use an adverb to modify the verb said. So, said stutteringly, which I, is a word I think I made up. I Never think... use an adverb to modify the verb said, Dan said quizzically. Yes. Which, again, I think I just made that word up. Stutteringly? Well. Is that, like, misunderestimated? Yes, it is. It is. But it's, again, it's out there now. People you, use it. You, you see, when that I all- hear someone say to me stutteringly, "Oh no, we're having an impact." Yeah, you you see that all the time, um, and people do. They qualify. They qual- and again, um, I know that that's one of the things that, that Leonard says. It's the if you, the writer, are using language to describe how the character said it again that's just the damn writer getting in the way exactly right getting in the way of the character you're getting in the way of the dialogue don't need to do it don't do it stop doing it yeah you don't say said quickly you describe how they said something and let your reader realize that they said it quickly and i think when you start to think about these things and digest them i think if you're worth your salt as a writer Mm -hmm. you don't need to do that stuff and by the end of 300 pages, you know, I'm just throwing 300 out there as, a, as the length of a book. Your audience, if they've stuck with you through the whole thing, you don't need to lead them by the hand. So you don't need to describe that. You're The way you've written the character and talked about the character and the actions and the plot and the way you've developed all that through the story, they'll. you don't need to tell them how the person said it. They'll know. You don't need to tell them that the person stuttered. They know the person stutters. You right. don't need to know that. So I, th- I think it's a neat rule. Absolutely. 
Uh, what else do we have on here? Never use the word suddenly or all hell broken loose. Right. And I got to tell you, that um, that was another laugh out loud moment for me <laughs> um, when I read your draft of this. Um, yeah. Because when you got to the end of the prologue and you led us into chapter one with and all hell broke loose, <laughs> um, and he actually coupled it with suddenly. Um, <laughs> Yeah, seriously, that was a that's one of those things where that was a nice payoff for me. Nice. Um, but anyway, I don't know where he's going with that. I think what I get from it is you don't need to say suddenly if you're writing and you're setting the pace and driving the plot. I think your audience is understanding that when there's a change, they know it happened suddenly. Yes, exactly. It's the same thing with you don't need to tell them that all hell broke loose because you if, describe it. Right. They're they're right there with exactly. you. Exactly. And if you have to hit the reader over the head to say, oh, wait a minute, I don't know if you're reading along with me here, but all hell is breaking loose right. or is about to. Yes. Then shame on you. So I think those are those are and funny. You know what Leonard says? It's that <clears throat> he says you don't need to explain. <laughs> it's funny. Never use the words suddenly or all hell broke loose. This rule doesn't require an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, maybe that's an, is that rule eleven we just broke? Right. Uh, see, there you go. Uh, and see, I didn't, I didn't read that part. Um, that, but anyway, I that's think why I, I sat here smiling yeah. as you said that. Okay, keep going, keep going, <laughs> keep going. Right. Use regional dialect sparingly, which. Again, see, you nailed this. And for the listeners to know, when Dan and I were putting this together as a topic for the show, I gave him Elmore Leonard's 10 Rules of Writing. And I said, we, we need to talk about this as an element of storytelling in yes. the ninth story. Within like five minutes, Dan responded, I'm going to write a short story breaking every one of these rules. <laughs> I, as a I, challenge. Right. And I said, absolutely, you have to do it. And we'll start the show that way. And he churned out this piece of fiction in moments. Yeah, about so, half an hour. Yeah, but still, I mean, the thing is, you know, hey, give you know, take a take a victory lap. You know, okay. give yourself a little pat on the back. <laughs> but the thing is that took some doing. So Dan was able to throw this together and break every one of these rules. And what I'm going to there is the use regional dialect sparingly. Um, I rated Canada for this. He did, and, and beautifully. Again, it's. I, I think I laughed seriously in in a, in a page and a half of of what you did completely off the cuff. Um, I had four or five legitimate laugh out loud moments, and nice. this this was probably the best one because you dropped Took in there. Uh, <laughs> I love Took, and 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 you wrapped it warmly with Nova Scotia. Yeah, <laughs> that's good shit, my friend. That that was good stuff. So for those um, of you not familiar with Canadian slang, some of right. these you probably have heard. Sure. Uh, I mean, if you if you watched. Um, Bob and Doug. Uh, it was SCTV. That's how I mean. It, yeah. was, it was Strange Brews, the movie. Strange Brew. That's right. What but I'm the McKenzie of. brothers, the McKenzie Rick Moranis, brothers. Dave Thomas. Yeah. Uh, not the Wendy's SCTV. Guy. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid growing up, Tuke. And yeah. they and they they had the great song "Take Off to the Great White North" yes. with Getty Lee from with Rush. Getty Lee from Rush, who's a uh, Canadian, right? Who is also Canadian. And Took, yeah. I've been hearing Took since it's oh. uh, the Twelve Days of Christmas is sung that's, by them as that's well. Right. It's in there. That's right. Took. But for those of you not familiar with Canadian slang, I actually spent uh, a summer up there as a uh, counselor for uh, a camp for uh, underprivileged kids and picked up some of the slang while I was up there because hey. we had folks from different parts of Canada all over the country. <laughs> and so it was like a mishmash of Canadian dialogue and, and Canadian accent. And because it's it's not every place that has that 
oh, how are you doing, eh? You know, yeah. it's not the entire country, obviously. I'll put a link in the show notes to grammar.yourdictionary.com, and it has a great page for slang for Canadian phrases broken down by region. And all of the ones that I used in here, including bunny hug, are included in that slang. <laughs> for, for those of you that might not know what a bunny hug is or a uh, Timmy Hose. Yeah, see, even those ones were lost on me. And see, I, I thought I knew a lot about our neighbors to the north. but uh, And that's why you don't overuse Well, that's a great way to wrap that up. Yeah. Excellent point. What I know about Canada, I learned from the McKenzie brothers and from watching the NHL. Yeah. yeah that's about it. And listening to And their, listening to Rush. Yeah. Um, and, and listening to their, uh, their anthem, which is... Which uh, I like more than the United States anthem. I don't know why. Wow. Yeah, I know that's sacrilegious, and I'm an American. I agree I, with you, though. But I think from a from a melodic songwriting standpoint, well, it wasn't written by some guy in a in a bar after you know 17 beers or something like that. Are you sure? I don't know. Yeah, I don't Maybe know. Maybe it was. I mean, Francis Scott Key. I don't well, know. Well, it's put to the tune of "God Save the Queen," isn't it? Isn't that? Isn't that what? It's it's pretty close. Yeah. But uh, when you watch a hockey game and you got I don't know the Penguins playing the Ottawa Senators and they sing both anthems. True patriot love and all thy sons command. Right. If I'm Simon Cowell, I'm voting for the guy who sang the O Canada. Yeah. Right. I'm not going for my home and native lands. Yeah, it's a it's a true patriot love and all thy sons command. Right. It's a great melody. um, Maybe we'll pick up some Canadian listeners. Maybe. 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 Cross the we'll cross the border. That's right. Which I can't do because I don't have uh, the the new uh, card that you need to get into Canada. Is that right? Well. Uh, that my passport's expired, so I have to get that renewed. <laughs> but you can use either. But you know, you you can you can sign up for the pack. You can get the uh, the the card. You can get the passport card. You can get the Canada card. Do it all. Yeah, you do it all. Get you up know there what, and get so, some Mike's hard lemonade. Well, right, and, but here's here's my With only vodka. advice on that. Um, if you want to go to Canada, you just go to Epcot. Ah, Canada's different, though, man. Yeah, it's right. like America Light. It's it, like you remember the episode of the Seinfeld where they they meet the uh, guys. The, the biz- Seinfeld. The episode of the Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> the episode of Seinfeld where they Bizarro. Uh, the Bizarro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Feldman. That's, yes, exactly. <laughs> That's what Canada's like. We should call him Feldman. Canada is America Light. It's Bizarro America because when you go up there, everything's clean. People are nice. They're friendly. It's like America, but slightly different. Slightly better. Or not better, just different. Yeah, different. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't say better because I did get homesick while I was up there. Well, sure. But it's America It's America back when America was good. Yeah, it's like... That uh, sounds it's, even worse. I'm sorry. I'm just digging myself a hole. Wow. We will not have we're gonna have drab a, America's name I was just through say, the dirt. So, so this has turned into a zero-sum game. <laughs> For every Canadian listener we pick up, we lose all the Americans. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll sit here and defend America and, and you be count, point counterpoint. Craig, you ignorant slut. <laughs> hey, the Canadian government wasn't shut down for 16 days. All right. Here we go. Wow. That's true. It wasn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, to- anything that any government should shut. I'm, I'm a big fan of shutting anything down. Uh, pretty mm-hmm. much. At this point. Yes. Um, avoid detailed descriptions of characters. I'm not sure I understand that one 100%. Me neither, because I always thought that that was a huge, and this is probably one of the biggest surprises to me, um, from Leonard. And I don't know if you can pull it up while I I go off on my little tangent here. Are you going to bash America for a little while? Well, I'm going to bash American characters. You know, if if we're describing characters that are maybe from Canada, we should describe them at length. If we're describing American characters, (laughs) one or, you know, one or two words will do. Um, Yeah, unlike South Park, we don't think that people from Canada have trash can heads. Right. I love Canada. Um, (laughs) 
I do. Don Cherry. Uh, you know, after the show, I'm, I'm glad you do because that's probably the only place it's going to take. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> get gonna... out of here. <laughs> if you don't like it, I'm, get the hell out. I'm going to be an expatriate living in uh, Toronto. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Enjoy the is, snow, friend. Toronto's a nice place to, 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 to spend some time. It's beautiful in the wintertime. Yeah, it's well, it's winter 11 months out of the year, so... <laughs> Anyway, um, so that, yeah, that avoid detailed descriptions of characters um, really kind of knocked me over because I, I got books on my bookshelf about writing that yeah. are all about character traits, character development, and a lot of writers go on and on and on describing characters. And I've always thought that that was <clears throat> fundamental to writing. This was really, this was a big epiphany for me to hear from Leonard. I think I understand where he's going with it, though, yeah. um, because it's it's what you call in writing the information dump. You don't want to dump information on your reader. Right. You want to intersperse it and make it seem natural. That's fair. You know, it's it's the whole whenever you have a conversation between two characters and they're trying to, the one character is like, well, you know, the reason why the bomb went off was because this happened and this happened. And you know, it's because it's made out of plastic and they didn't get detected. You know what though? But I know that guy. There are people like that in real life. You know, guys, and I won't name them, but we know people like that. Yes. You know that guy where you get his whole life story in 15 minutes. And and, and now that you said it like that, I think I think I see where Leonard's going with that because it's like, a story is a story. It's like life. It's like you don't learn everything about a person the first time you meet them. You learn bits and pieces, and yeah. that's the character development. Right. You don't have to sit there and write a full page about Dan Foydick wore eyeglasses. He had dark hair. He was five foot two. He went to college here. He married so and so. Sure. As a boy, he was this, and you know you don't need to do that. You right. don't need to. You don't need to give a dossier on a person. I'm actually five nine. I, <laughs> Did I even talk about your height? You're Did I do to, that? You're trying to sneak in seven yeah. inches on me there. Hey, friend. now, watch it. Watch it. But yeah, I mean, I get that. So so it's like avoid detailed descriptions of characters. And I think what he's saying is um, avoid detailed descriptions of characters in one sitting. You know, like yes. in this chapter, you want to make it this. natural. That's it should right. be stuff like, you know, you know, she brushed the, right. the, the, the red lock out of her. You know, you, you don't dump. <laughs> Which, again, I, I'm laughing, Dan, only because I loved your introduction of the character Harry yeah. when you say he was exactly <laughs> six feet tall and had long sandy blonde hair that hung to his shoulders when it wasn't tucked into a tooth. I mean, that's a, that, you know, and then leaden gray eye. I mean, you just beat it to death. Exactly. You that's, know, we, so we, that's, we, we beat I, Harry and that, I mean, the exactly six feet tall. You couldn't get any more. You don't know what Gary looks like at all. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Avoid detailed descriptions. And I just told you this yeah. is, he's exactly this height. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, that actually was, uh, that's an homage to something <laughs> someone told me one time, which is don't say he was about six. He's, right. You're the writer. Right. Tell him he's six feet tall. Right. So I went over the top on it. He was exactly <laughs> six feet tall. Because I get, but uh, he, he was taller than 96% of the population. Right. You know, his body mass index was within this percentile. That's correct. <laughs> he always wore, <laughs> he liked to wear corduroy pants when the, you know, I, it's, I get he it. I like the sound they made when they went, <laughs> but, it, but it is funny because, but, but I, and I, and I think the thing is like, it's, it's as silly as it sounds, you know, in 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 one week's period of time since I since I got this particular book, 
it has really impacted, and not just my 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 creative writing. Yeah, your professional um, writing. My professional as well, writing too, which has to be concise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's and even it's like, more important for right, that to be right. concise. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, let's see what else you say. Don't go into great detail describing things and places. All right. Which uh, I tried as much as possible to break in the prologue as well as in the description of the bedroom with the chocolate brown drapes blocking out the brightest of the early morning sun. <clears throat> the chocolate brown drapes was a nice touch, I thought. Yeah, chocolate brown. Right. Mm. Uh, and then, oh, and then the last one uh, is well, try. Uh, go ahead. Before you go on with that, I was going to say the, one of the things that kind of stood out and because, you know, we talk about Thomas Harris. We've, we've talked about him before and... Um, Oh yeah, Tom. You, yeah. you you know what? Yeah, you know Harry, as we call him, as <laughs> I call him. His last name's Harris, but I call him Harry because we're we're, we're Tony close. Wright letters. Yeah. He, well, interestingly enough, yes, he he did indirectly. Yeah, because he's the one Tony. who wrote, wrote right. Um, but Thomas Harris, um, not Ed Harris, not Ed Harris. <laughs> one of the things, as I noted in a previous episode, doing a little bit of the research to make fun of Tony Hopkins in his letter to Brian Cranston. I was looking at Silence of the Lambs and I was looking at Hannibal. Yeah. And Silence of the Lambs is a great book. And Hannibal's not a bad book. But just look at them on your bookshelf. Hannibal is like three times the size of Silence of the Lambs. Yes. Because I think Thomas Harris breaks every friggin' rule on here. Um, And one of the things that he really breaks is... Don't go into great detail describing things and places. And, and I think you and I talked about this before. Clearly, he was on vacation or living in Italy <laughs> when he wrote Hannibal because he just goes on oh, yeah. and on and on. And and I guess that's a good thing. But I, after reading that, felt like that book had been co-opted and or written by the Chamber <laughs> of Commerce of Florence. Because it was like, it just, it, it literally walked me down the street. He, yeah. he described everything about that yeah and and it kind of goes back to the whole um james mishner used to do that too and that was the thing like he would write a book about alaska and he would go live in alaska for six months and then just spew out everything you wanted to know about alaska that and that's what and so again i think uh, it's a surprising rule to me because a lot of great authors that we know do that's what they do and 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 Hemingway did that, you know. Yeah. Hemingway would go here and he would write about that place and describe it in tremendous detail. Yeah. Like if he was in Spain, you knew, you knew damn well you were going to get a big old chapter about the streets of Pamplona. Yeah. There's there's some different thoughts on that. What is more real to your reader? Their concept of a barn, their concept of Italy, even if it's a stereotype. That what they think Italy Mama looks like. Mamma mia! <laughs> Make because if I describe something, if I describe a barn to you, and right. I go into great detail in what my barn looks like, it may not seem as real to you as your barn. Sure. So you use that shortcut to get into the mind of your reader to say your concept. Once I start talking about a barn, the shafts of light came through the boards and danced with the dust that was was tossed up from the hay probably all i need to do yeah you know and you can fill in the rest that's a, that's a great point because you've seen you know what a barn in, is right you've either been in one or you've seen one or you've seen one in a movie if i continue to go on and describe it maybe my barn's green but your barn's red yeah. maybe my barn's red and your barn's green so the more detail i give you about my barn the less real it is to you i can make you be in that moment 
if I make you do some of the work. Yeah, no, that's 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 a that's a great point. Um, and you know, it's it's funny as you as you talk through these things, you you start to realize what separates good writing, I think, from bad writing. Yeah, um, a lot of bad writers, and and by bad writers, I, I I don't mean bad writers per se, but I mean it really becomes the the Harlequin romance, or even even yeah. I don't want to. Say, I'm not going to. I don't want to say Pulp Fiction because Pulp Fiction is actually written in the the style that that not not the movie Pulp Fiction, yeah. the true Pulp Fiction is written in this style. But a lot of these things, and not that not that I've read, but you know, when you were an eighth grade boy, yeah. you read the books that describe the sex. Yeah, it's you're writing to your audience. And that's how these book. That's how those books are written. Yeah, you know, because you you go on and on. You 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 have a page of descriptors to talk about how big a woman's breasts are <laughs> and it's how large. and you come up with how many different adjectives to describe someone's throbbing manhood you know and that's the thing it's like and you german headed right. soldier plunged into a- every rule mound. right every thing that elmore leonard says not to do that's what those writers do yes yeah that's why i think it would be uh it'd be very easy I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe it. Maybe it's not. But I, I would. I. I personally think it would be very easy to write that type of fiction. I think so too. It's easy to write. Well, going back to what uh, it's easy to write. It's hard to write it well. You Correct. know, kind of to, to take off on Ebert's commentary about how John Carpenter filmed the Halloween film. Anybody can shoot violence. It's hard to do violence and do it well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I did at one time, maybe I'll find it and I'll dig it out, but I, at one time I wrote a chapter of a trashy romance novel just uh. for fun, kind of like I did with this. Yeah. And uh, it's just so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad that it's good. So. Yeah. Um, and then what was the last, last one? rule? Try to leave out the part that readers tend to skip. Yeah. So now here's the thing. I did, I I, I, I really focused on that part of the book and... Um, I think that's 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 a neat rule, um, and it's something that I admit that I do even with writers that I love. And what what Leonard is talking about there is, if somebody looks at a page that just looks like it's a whole bunch of writing, <laughs> where it's not broken up with dialogue oh, or stuff, God, this and, and it's just going to be right. It's going to going to be this huge passage of description or narrative with no break in it that mm-hmm. looks intimidating to the reader yeah people will skip it yeah well i mean i learned that i mean i think you and i are both big fans of sometimes the ultimate email which is this huge chunk of verbosity that right. goes on for about seven paragraphs and sometimes it's, it's fun to do that as long as you realize that what you're doing when you do that is your reader is going to get it and go oh <laughs> god i just got a homework project right it's fun sometimes to go on for eight paragraphs. Of oh, absolutely. Verbosity. Well, and that's right. And I don't know if you read that section, but you can clearly tell that Elmore Leonard has a fondness for Joseph Conrad. And he has a fondness yes. for John Steinbeck. And he talks about them. Yes. But he says even Steinbeck basically said, you can tell from the way I write a chapter, the title that I give to a chapter it might be something that you want to skip. And he calls it a hop to doodle Yeah. And there are two <laughs> chapters in Sweet Thursday that are called hop to doodle one and hop to doodle 2 And when he's talking about the hop to doodle it's, this is where I'm going to give you a whole lot of description about stuff. And you know what? It really doesn't tie into the storyline. So if you want to skip this chapter, it's okay. Yeah, it's not going to affect your enjoyment right. of the story. It, it, but if you're a fan and you want to read it, and it's right. kind of like after you watch Ghostbusters 50 times to sit down and watch the behind the scenes that's when exactly, it comes that's out a, on DVD. That's, you know, a, wow. that's a great way of looking at it. It's the deleted scenes. Yeah. 
Yeah. If you're a fan, mm -hmm. would you have liked to have seen these in the movie because they did something? Right. There's a reason why those seven scenes didn't make it. Yeah. Because they don't do it. They don't take away from the film, but they sure as hell don't add anything to it. They change the pacing or that, whatever. That, that's right. Yeah. That's the hard part when you're writing or editing or whatever. I mean, like I edit the, the hell out of the shows that we do. You cut stuff and you're like, oh my God, that's brilliant. I wish I could keep that, but right. it, it just doesn't fit right. at that point. Or it changes the, sometimes you throw it at the end because it's it's something fun or you save it for later or whatever. But that's that's the hard part is editing stuff, cutting out the stuff that, killing your darlings as, yes. you know, as it has been so eloquently put. Yeah. Um, so, so good stuff there. Um, so we, Elmore Leonard in his Ten Rules of Writing and an excellent fumble rule from Dan Foydick. Um, and just so everybody knows, the fumble rule is something that uh, comes from another one of my favorite authors. This must be another one of Craig's books. Right, it is. William Sapphire, who was a favorite of mine, he wrote for, I can't remember which what column he wrote. Sapphire had an on-language column, and it was syndicated. And he's a political columnist and political writer for years, a smart guy. I had heard about this book that he had called Fumble Rules. Okay. And, it's, and it's a clever little book. And the fumble rule, as, as Sapphire defines it, is a mistake that calls attention to the rule. Ah, uh, okay. So the whole thing that you just did there was you wrote a big fumble rule. <laughs> yes. You took... Everything that Leonard said not to do, and you did it, and you did it in the context of a story, which is why personally I think it's great. Yeah. And I, you know, you don't need me to kiss your ass, <laughs> um, but it's witty. And, and like I said, you, you threw it together in a quick period of time. Um, Sapphire, you, just just for everyone's edification, he says the most graphic representation of the fumble rule is found in offices and schools, and it's the sign that says "Plan Ahead." And it has all the letters squeezed together and the final D is almost crowded <laughs> off the page. And I know exactly what he's talking about. And if you visualize that, that's the beauty of it. And a couple of other great fumble rules. And, and Dan and I have known each other for a long time. And we've shared this with each other over the years. Never use prepositions to end sentences with. Uh, don't use no double negatives. Don't you use no double negatives. And one of my favorites, and you touched on this earlier. Last but not least, avoid cliches like the plague. <laughs> that's right. That's a fantastic piece of writing. To put that in one sentence, you get two cliches in there and you make the fumble rule out of it. It's awesome. Uh, take the bull by the hand and don't mix metaphors. <laughs> That's terrific. Zap onomatopoeia, which is a personal favorite of mine because I just, you know, zap onomatopoeia, if everybody does it, onomatopoeia is that... The word that sounds like what it describes. Exactly. So to say, to have your fumble rule be zap onomatopoeia is fantastic. Um, and then... Again, another personal favorite. If I've told you once, I told you a thousand times, avoid hyperbole. <laughs> um, again, fumble rules. Um, that's Is that like somebody saying, I'm literally shitting myself? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 well, yeah, I guess it could be. So, you know, the fumble rules, compliments of William Sapphire, the Elmore Leonard's 10 rules of writing, and a great fumble rule from Mr. Foydick displaying... All of the things that Elmore Leonard is probably turning over in his grave for right now. Correct. So we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be back. We're going to plan ahead and take a break. <laughs> hey, this is Gary Busey. When I'm not being batshit insane or out there making commercials with gerbils, I listen to the Ninth Story Podcast. Help me somebody. Let's go. Let's go. 
kick it one time. everybody welcome back yes we're back and um better than ever again a beautiful beautiful piece of music there uh daniel let's you know thank all the uh the artists who contribute uh, material to the show absolutely it's we can stuff, uh, right? find everything in the show notes there's links to all the music that we play in the show of course uh we always enjoy interaction from uh, the listeners so follow us on tell at you, ninth story tell you who i'm not gonna thank who's that that little minx victoria are you talking to me? I don't see anyone else here, so you must be talking to me. She still scares the hell out of me. She, I mean, she's a little freaky. Five episodes in, I still, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, she's she ratchets that damn thing up at the beginning and plays I'm never, the music. I'm never sure if we're gonna stop at the ninth. It's it's all you got a little Tower of Terror thing going there. Like we may yeah. go up and then she may just pull the floor out from under us and we may drop to our deaths. <laughs> I don't like people who say mean things to me. Um, you never know what's going to happen. I don't. I don't know because I just can't. I can't get a read on. But she's you know, a little she's, bit of a. She's a little bit of a trickster. She is. She is. She's, she's a little bit of a sense of humor yeah, there, but yeah. uh, I don't. I don't hundred percent trust her either. Right. I mean, I'm not going to vilify her, but I'm no. also. I mean, I'm not going to thank her. You should be nice. She's. Uh, she's been doing uh, a, a little bit of visiting. She's. Well, that's uh, what she, I'm saying. She, she's been over with uh, Doctor Towers, right. talking to him, and uh, she, she was on the uh, over with the stepfather and his crew. Sure, and you know, and maybe that's part of the problem. I mean, I trust the doctor, but Sarah, he's he's planting ideas in her head, so she's probably getting a little. Yeah, you got to be careful. Yeah, she's going to be a little, a little. You don't want to make her angry. She well, you that's, wouldn't like and, her, and that's when my she's angry. That's Mr. right, McGee, and, and that's kind of my fear. She's a little. She's got a little malice aforethought going on here. Don't make me scared. And I, and I think a lot of that has to do with Mike Sarah. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. It could be. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, we'll keep an eye on her. She's yeah. not afraid of the dark. <laughs> right. Well, then we love that about her. So, Victoria, again, nice work. Not thanking you, though. I'm going to give you nightmares. She scares me. Yeah? She scares me. Well, a little bit. There you go. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit with the scares. <laughs> anyway. Why do you think that in horror movies, like Children of the Corn, yeah. or the original Nightmare on Elm Street with the nursery rhymes, why do you think that children and children's songs or things that are innocent are so frightening when transposed with something frightening like a horror movie? Um, what makes that? Because it's it's extra scary. I could be dead wrong, but I think it all goes back to... I'm trying to... Re I'm, I'm only stuttering and pausing and stammering here because I'm trying to get some recall on something that I recently read from Roger Ebert mm -hmm. um, where he was talking about and you know when we did our Halloween show we talked a little bit about the comparison between Halloween and Psycho and Ebert talked about Psycho and why that works and why it continues to work and why it's immortal in terms of fears because it taps into a lot of our base fears um and he kind of you know basically you know alluded to fears that you have from a very early age um 
the dark. Yeah, fears of the dark. Fear, what's in the dark. Right, a, a fear of, you know, and, and he taps on all, like, fear of not disappointing your mother, fear of becoming the victim of a madman, fear of yourself committing a, an act of violence completely out of impulse, things that are beyond your control, and all of those fears. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think the way you describe that in, in horror films, I just think there is something about, and juxtaposition is a great word for it, that in and of themselves, on a standalone, it doesn't necessarily frighten us. But when you put things together, you put the right music with it, put a little bit of the right imagery with it, take it in context with the fact that I'm in a scary movie, um, and then you put a nursery rhyme around that, I think it takes you back to, it's just, it's just this, visceral experience of the it, it triggers something mm. about the first time you were afraid or the first time you became aware of fear yeah. that's a good that's you know a what i mean point. Yeah, because absolutely. because by and large i think you know kids are are generally fearless yeah you learn fear yes you know what i mean it's like you you my, my kids right now you know 10 and 9 they don't there's a lot of things that they don't it's the whole thing about a roller coaster they don't, they don't care about roller coasters right now because they don't know to be afraid mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's like right. you get more afraid the older you get yeah, it's probably and, and, true. And, and I and I think that's what it is. There's just something um, that's inborn, something that's innate about when you wrap all of those things in the in that package. Something inside us um, just it just triggers. It's almost like a Pavlovian dog. It's like, oh wait a minute. There's think, something about that happening the, right now that makes me that rem, reminds me of a time in my life when I was just learning to be afraid. Yeah. Do you think some of it has, it's like the scare factor, like when somebody jumps out from around a corner, because, and I mean that by, like if you see a little girl jumping rope and you walk up behind her and you get closer and she turns around and she's, you know, his horribly disfigured, she's got a zombie face, laser beam shooting out of her eyes, whatever. <laughs> there's, there's something, like in Walking Dead, yeah. the scene where they show the little girl walking by and you see that she's actually a zombie. You mean like in the, in the first season? Yes. Like when Rick, what is that? Like season one? That might be the first episode, isn't it? Isn't that right after Rick comes out of the, but I know. I don't know that it's the, I, it's in the first, it's definitely it's, in the first season. It's in season. the first season. It's, it's like, it's like yeah. one or two. It's yeah, early it's, on. It's, it's early, early in. One. Right. There's just something extra disturbing. And, well, and then, well, I won't give too much away because we have our binge viewers out there. Right. But there's just, I, I, I don't know. It, part of it is, I think, maybe the juxtaposition because you expect something to be innocent. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's like you let your guard down. Maybe that's what it is. You let your guard down because you see, oh, it's okay. But as soon as you hear that broken music box and the creepy, you know, something's not right. It's, it's, a, it's a great, it's a, that's a great point because it does have to be. Um, it's it's kind of you know I'm just thinking is no correlation but it's kind of like the, the 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 first the Tim Burton Batman where you know on its own it's not harmful but it's like <laughs> you know they say <laughs> but if you right smilex if you but if you if you have toothpaste and deodorant together it's it'll kill you yeah exactly you know what I mean it's like and, and, and you're making a great point because um, and 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 again I know this is is not necessarily the the topic that we're getting to. Um, and I don't want to go back to, 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 to Walking Dead stuff, but there are elements within Walking Dead where you, that, that scene that you referenced there with the young girl, that one was bothersome to me. And I don't know why. 
because you have a daughter. No, no, no. And because you can relate but, to it that well, way. But, but here, here, well, it was something as a parent you would never want to see happen to your child. Absolutely. Um, and just as a standalone moment like that, you know, you have this visceral reaction to it, and you, you you're probably right because it's like, oh, you know, shit. But then. The stuff with, to, to your point, let's not spoil anything because some you could have binge binge viewers who are just getting to this point. But when you get to that arc with the governor's daughter, mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, How absolutely. You, you know. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And the way that played out, I had those moments where it was like, that's terribly, that's gut-wrenching. Yes. To watch him. Yeah. Um, but then when that resolves itself that I wanted it to resolve itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. And, 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 I'm, and I'm not divulging You're torn much. between both. Yes. Right. But it was like, and then the way that resolves, it's kind of, and I hate to say it, you were kind of like, good. Way yeah. to go. I'm glad. Because that's violent. It is. I mean, that was, and that was one of those things when, when that happened, I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe they just did that. Yeah. I can't believe that happened. That was a scene where I had to stop and, and like uh, walk away. And exactly. If that would have happened... In the context of one episode, I might have not watched that show anymore because I don't know if I would have been able to handle it. Yeah. Or, you know, or, or, or approved of yep. it. But the way they did it yeah. over several episodes. So that's good writing. That's that's, that's knowing right. what that's right. your audience is going to, how yeah. your audience is going to react. Yeah. And Great point. Great point. Great point. Yeah, so, I got a little off track there. Sorry. That's all right. Um, so speaking of being off track. Yes. Well, dynamite drop in. <laughs> Talk about unscripted movie moments. Yeah, so so the unscripted, the art of the unscripted movie moment was, um, again, our 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 premise here on the show is if if it's not an original thought, we'll we'll always give credit to it. And I don't want anybody to think that this is something that uh, Dan and I sat around and said, hey, here are some 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 great things. This was on. It was on the internet. I mean, hey, I'm a Comcast subscriber or whatever. That's my internet provider. And anybody who's got the Comcast knows that when you log on there, there's stuff that just pops up on there. And this was one of the things that came up a couple of weeks ago. And it was unscripted movie moments. And it was... You know, so this was this was actually from Comcast. Yeah. This was like on their teaser page yeah, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. On the teaser page. And it was like, hey, some of the greatest moments in Hollywood history have not been scripted. He, click here to find out what they are. And then the, 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 there's this list of you know, okay. eight, eight to ten things that popped up. And, you know, just a little blurb on there about what happened. Right. We're talking like Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones scene where he pulls out the gun and shoots the guy. Mm-hmm. Because he had dysentery and wasn't feeling well and wanted to go back to the hotel and just decided, you know what, I'm going to end this scene. <laughs> right. Which is perfect because you get the guy that's flipping his sword around and doing, and there was supposed to be, from what I understand, a lot more to that. Yeah. And Harrison Ford's just like, boom. <laughs> is that true? I, I, that's I, what I've heard. Okay. I mean, so one of my favorite websites ever, Snopes.com. Okay. Are you familiar with Snopes? This, is that the Snopes monkey trial? <laughs> Oh, that was the Scopes Monkey Trial. That's entirely Snopes. N-O-P-E-S dot com. Snopes. Snopes is designed to... Snopes doggy dog? Kill rumors. Kill so you rumors. know how you get all these emails from people who are like, wow, there's a virus that's going around. Or, right. you know, 
Dear reader, this letter was written by Robin Williams in 1984 about such and such. You, you can go in the Snopes and you can put this stuff in here and it'll tell you whether it's true or not. Snopes is a great place. I go there and I will sometimes, depending upon my mood, respond back to the email and go, here's a link to Snopes. Check it out. Your story is not true. Right. So here's the claim at Snopes.com, movies, films, Raiders. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Case of the trots led to... <laughs> Status? True. Origins, in the 1981 film Raiders of the Lost Ark, one particular scene consistently brings the house down. In the 1981 film Raiders of the Lost Ark, one particular scene consistently brings the house down. Indiana Jones, having survived an elaborate chase through the Cosbah, is confronted by a swordman whipping through a flashy routine with a scimitar. With a look of infinite fatigue and disgust, Indy simply pulls out his gun and blows the bad guy away. Right. The bit flowed not from the pen of a screenwriter, but from the desperation of Harrison Ford. His desire to spend less time on the scene and more in the washroom led to an actor-inspired script change that was that ultimately worked into the film, or that was ultimately worked into the film. As for whose idea it was, according to a 1981 interview with Steven Spielberg, Ford developed dysentery in the blistering 130-degree heat of Tunisia, where the cast and crew had to fan their mouths constantly to keep out the flies looking for shade. One crawled in the chief villain Paul Freeman's mouth during a crucial scene. That That is on film. I mean, I, yes. I have actually seen that. Yes. Too weak to swing his whip, Indy was slated for a three-and-a-half-page fight when Ford had a better idea. We had Indy pull out his revolver and dispatch the dude, said Spielberg, of the film's funniest scene. So, yeah, there's like this elaborate battle that that's supposed to take place, and I'm sure his whip's involved and all kinds of other stuff, and he's just like, I get it. I gotta get out of here. What do you say? <laughs> I gotta. I can see. It. I so, gotta go drop off some of these flies. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So, so where do you think George Lucas was through all that? Because isn't I mean Spielberg directed swallowing but, cats, but wasn't that that's a that's a story by and I don't remember. If, well, it's a collaboration between the two. Well, yeah. absolutely. But yeah. I mean, in terms of the writing. The writing? Because I could see Lucas saying, yes, for three and a half pages, Harrison Ford is... Because why, wow. why, write, why write any good dialogue yeah. when I can <laughs> just write three, well, three and a half I'm pages of... I'm curious now. Who wrote the dialogue for that? Because I never had a problem with any of the dialogue in... I don't... I don't I, I, in, and I don't oh, think God, either one of them did. Lucas. Lucas could not have written I think that it's, dialogue. I think it's story by George Lucas, you know, written by... That's the way that every Lucas yeah. thing should be the, done. The, the best ones, absolutely. Let's, yeah. Way to go, Harrison right Ford. I mean, I never knew. That's that's a great drop in there. Who knew? Harrison Ford had the shits. <laughs> Therefore, the, one of the best scenes of all film. Yeah. And certainly... I'm sure my favorite scene from if Raiders. they do a top 100 scenes, it's got to be in there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it is a it's a real hoot, too. It brings down the house, everybody. And the reason why, you know, I wanted to talk about this on the show because it's about stories and ultimately that's what you know i know we get off track on a lot of topics here but ultimately you know the ninth story is about is about storytelling and writing obviously without writing um there will be no stories we would have very little stories right um unless you want to watch reality tv which is more scripted than well right. as this is going to show you right. it's probably more scripted than uh, a movie is that's exactly right these are iconic lines i mean these are lines that most people, if not all people who have watched film, know these. They're big lines from big movies. And I was fascinated by the fact that 
given that you and I are both enamored with the writing process. As, as you and I talked about before, one of the things I'm really drawn to in, in just writing and storytelling is is generally not the, the finished product, but the process. So I'm really, uh, really interested in the interplay that took place between the screenwriters, the directors, the performers, to see how this particular magic happened um, yeah. in, in these uh, moments that were captured on film. So without further ado, just talk a little bit about um, some of the biggins here. Some of the biggins. Some of the biggins. The first one is from Jaws, where Roy Scheider says, you're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> Completely improvised by Roy Scheider. Was not in the original script. Wow. Scheider just dropped it in there. How many times do you hear that line? I mean, it's in pop culture, you hear reference made to, you're gonna need a bigger boat. I would have assumed that <laughs> given, you know, the, the, the film that Jaws was, I mean, and I'm pretty sure Jaws was based on a book by, I think it's Peter Benchley was the author. And then, you know, you, you had a young Spielberg involved in that, but still it was Spielberg. So you, you, you would have thought that there would have been a lot of attention paid to, um, every ounce and in, in, in bit of, of dialogue and to find out that that probably the line that if you told people give me one line of dialogue from Jaws that's going to be the line yeah. of dialogue it, I, I know for sure it would be the one that I pulled out and again nine times out of ten that's what people are going to say um, so again I'm amazed that uh, that was not written to something that the the actor came up with and, and not to diminish Roy Scheider but I don't consider Roy Scheider to be one of the greatest thespians of our time well done Roy I mean you know yeah. hats off to Roy Scheider so unscripted movie moment number two it's in a hole <laughs> Bill Murray that's a baby Ruth the whole scene of Murray in Caddyshack the whole bit with him it's a Cinderella story yeah at Augusta, when he's lining up there and yeah. just and teeing off on the flowers, yes, um, that whole bit is ad libbed. It's it was kind of a basic idea, yeah, to have him do something, but he starts going off on the whole Bill Murray in his prime at Augusta, blah blah blah. The yes. Carl Spackler character, the groundskeeper yes. at Bushwood. Um, that's all. That's all unscripted. So you know, kudos. I mean, that's a. It's in the hole is uh, another <laughs> iconic phrase yes. from 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 Hollywood lore. The I'm walking here. Oh yeah, that's a line. great one. And I'm walking here is another p bit of. Yeah, he almost got hit by a car. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's exactly right. So when Dustin Hoffman and John Voight are walking down the street in the film Midnight Cowboy, Hoffman has that iconic line. I'm walking here. Yeah, and he kind of beats on the hood of a car. To to your point, that was unscripted. That was just kind of hey. You two actors go walk down the street and blah blah, blah and he almost got hit by a car. Yeah, um, that was not that was not in the script. He came up with that line. And again, if you were to tell me, "Hey, Craig, what one line can you tell me from Midnight Cowboy?" That would be Cowboy. That, that would be it. It would be well, Rhinestone Cowboy is <laughs> entirely different. <laughs> it would be I'm walking here, and I would be hard pressed to remember any other lines of dialogue from that. It's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but not not a whole lot of memorable lines. And but that one is uh, that's an iconic film line. And we would have been robbed of of the reuse of that line in Forrest Gump. Well, there you go. Which is funnier whenever it's delivered by Lieutenant Dan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In Full Metal Jacket. Do have you seen uh, the Full Metal Jacket? I have, and I am a huge fan of Arlie Emery. Yeah, I met him at. Um, it was like you did not meet him. You puke wagon. <laughs> I met him at a car show. You didn't. Yes. <laughs> Your he's, ass looks like 50 awesome. pounds of He is exactly like he is in the movies in real life. Yeah. 
So Full Metal Jacket, the first half of that film is great. The boot camp stuff is fantastic. Yeah. Once they leave boot camp and go to Vietnam, it turns into a, you know, a formula Vietnam movie. Yes. Um, a little disappointing. Stanley Kubrick directed that. Kubrick's a great filmmaker, but uh, kind of let that movie get away from him. Anyway, he did the right thing, um, in my opinion, because the first half of that movie is great. And the reason why it's great is because of Arlie Ermey as the drill instructor. And every bit of his dialogue was yes. unscripted. Now, every the, bit, every bit, every, wow. every, every bit. Well, it's because he's a drill instructor. And I was going to say, well, there you go, though. Central, he was right out of central casting for a reason, because the guy was a damn drill instructor yeah. anyway. So They're like, just do what you normally would do. Exactly. But, you know, kudos to him for, Come for on being my sister. Right. Mary Jane Rottencrotch, you know, <laughs> and, you know, that's great. And, again, I was well, you, not well, a... you remember earlier in the show where I said, you're trying to sneak in seven inches on me? Yeah. That's, that's a reference to... Obviously, that scene in Full Metal Jacket where he's like, are you trying to sneak in an inch on me? Do you remember that? I don't. I take your word for it. Was it scripted or unscripted? Uh, Does Arlie well, Ermey say it? If he said it, yeah, well, so then it, it has to be unscripted. Well, there you go. That must have happened to him at some point. You trying to sneak in an inch on me? Private Joker? Does he say it to Private I Joker? I think he does say it to Private Joker. Matthew Modine? <laughs> yeah. Matthew McConaughey? Not that, no, because oh. it was Matthew McConaughey. We have to oh. take my shirt off. All right, all right. I'm going to take my shirt off. <laughs> have you ever seen, not to get too off topic, but have you ever seen Matt Damon do his Matthew McConaughey impersonation <laughs> no. on Letterman? Every time Letterman has him on, he asks him to do his Matt. For, Google it, people. Why? Right. Google Matt Damon's Matthew McConaughey impersonation. They knew each other when they were starting out. Sure. And... I don't know if they roomed together or I can. I, they were they were lovers. <laughs> I'm starting that rumor, and people can go debunk it. Yeah, because you just gave them the site. Sno go to Snopes.com. Right. People and, and go verify. to Snopes.com and it'll say Matthew McConaughey and Matt Damon gay lovers, <laughs> um, and it'll get debunked, um, or will it? Well, I don't know that that's. I think it's a brand new rumor. It was a, no, that was a triangle. I mean, it was Affleck, McConaughey, and Damon. Seriously? Absolutely. No, I mean, was this like actually a rumor no. that was going on at no. some point? It is now. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it will be again. It's not a rumor. It's a fact. That's right. Allegedly. Rumors are just uns unsubstantiated facts. Right. <laughs> this is not the opinion of the show. This is the not opinion of Mr. Weber. That's it's it, Right. And when I'm done with the show, I'm going to Canada and spread more gay rumors <laughs> about Matt Damon. You and spend Matt more gay love up there. Which, right. Because, hey. Um... <laughs> You know, they were, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> John Voigt's character. They, you know, that's, you ever seen Midnight Cowboy? I've seen, a, I've seen that scene. <laughs> right. Everybody's talking. Yeah, that's the song, <laughs> Nilsson. Well, I know Dog Day Afternoon's about that. Is about what? Lovers. Lovers. Male lovers. Yeah. What's up with Pacino? He's a male lover. He's the devil. He, he was, he, he had no problem because like, there was the movie Cruising. Yeah. You know, Pacino, I don't know, maybe. He's he's an actor. He can well, play whatever you want him to. Well, he's a method actor, too, yeah. so. <laughs> well, see, it's the method actors you got to worry about because they're like, no, if I'm going to be gay, I'm going to really be gay. Yeah. I'm going to go hang out with, uh, uh, let's just compare tan lines. Right, exactly. So, all right, let's move off that topic because we're just going to get ourselves in trouble. Yeah, we'll just cut that out. Yeah. Or you don't have to cut it, have to cut it out. You can just, you Oh, know, yeah, I'm don't cut it out. <laughs> Shut it. Don't leave it in. All right, so, so moving on to... Um, the uh, I'm saving a couple here. So the so the next this this one, I was interested to get your take on this one. Okay, uh, because it's um, 
Jack Nicholson's line. Oh. From The Shining. Yes, that one. When he chops through the door to, to go after Here's young Wendy. Here's Johnny. Totally improvised. And as the as the write-up on this said, the only place she'd ever heard that before was coming out of Ed McMahon's mouth. Yeah. And some way, or some for some reason, uh, Jack Nicholson decided, this is what I'm going to say. They left it in there, totally improvised. Drop yeah. that in there. It, it kind of goes without saying, I remember reading The Shining a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that didn't find its way into Stephen King's uh, no. masterpiece. Um, but, you, you know, the way they, the way the, the, the screenwriters parsed and edited, I never knew if they actually put it into the script. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't. Uh, that was all, that was all Jack. We, we've talked a little bit about Mr. Ford. Apparently, um, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that wasn't the first time Harrison Ford went off the book. Yeah. Um, one of the great lines for all of us fans of the rogue, Han Solo. Ah, uh, in, yes. em, in Empire Strikes Back. The scene where just before he gets dipped into carbon and Princess Leia professes her love for the the rogue that we know to be Han Solo. And Dan, what does Harrison Ford say? I know it. <laughs> that's true. That's Bender. Um, I know. Right. The, that delivery was much better. Yeah. Right. He was he was supposed to reciprocate and basically say I love you or I love you too like, or whatever, but he didn't. Yeah, he, because he felt that Han Solo wouldn't say that. That's right. He he did, and 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 I think that was a surprise to everybody. He went and said it, and I think you know when they probably said, "Cut, Harrison, what the fuck?" <laughs> and I think he he made his point and yeah. was like, he wouldn't say that. Yeah, that's not him. Yeah. However, do you do you remember that in Return of the Jedi that the line is switched? Whenever the stormtrooper comes up behind, yes, you, when uh, they're trying to open the door, when and, she got shot in the yes. arm, um, and and she's laying there, and Han's shielding her, the stormtrooper comes up from behind, and she's got the blaster, right? Yeah, and he he knows that she's gonna shoot the, the yeah. stormtrooper. He's like, I love you. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but he, yeah, that that is that's that's a good point. I I'd forgotten about that, but it's it's a great. When, so so when Han Solo. Even when he does do the, I love you, he kind of does it like yeah. the, hey, pal. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like an emotional, you know, in the throes of love, I love you. It's not a passionate, I love you. It's kind of, ah, gee, pal. Yeah. I sure do love you, buddy. <laughs> you know? And she's like, I know. And I'll let me whack this guy. Let's head up to Canada. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> I'll let you uh, run off to Canada with your brother, though. That's right. <laughs> And, and so last but not least, one of the greatest lines of all time from Taxi Driver. And how sad it is that most people only know the line, but not the whole monologue, because the monologue is awesome. Right. And great point. I saved this one for last so that we can add a little bit to that. Yeah. Again, I, as people know, I'm a big fan of Roger Ebert. There's, there's, a, there's something from Ebert's The Great Movies book uh, that he added. So the line that we're referring to is the famous, you talking to me? where De Niro is standing there talking to himself, looking in the mirror. Bob De Niro, I can call him Bob, sure. Yeah, Robert. That's what, that's what his friends call him. His friends they call do. him Bob. Yeah, I call him D. He was just told to improvise. Yeah. And that's what he came up with. Now, to, to your point, that's a powerful line, and Roger Ebert points that out to us as well, with the, are you talking to me? And how does he follow that up? What's the rest of the line? I don't see anybody else here, so you must be talking to me. That's right. That's right. And and Roger Ebert points out the beauty of the line is that it's the last line 
that never gets quoted, but it's the truest line in the film. Travis Bickle, that's the character De Niro mm -hmm. plays, yep. exists in Taxi Driver as a character with a desperate need to make some kind of contact somehow, to share or mimic the effortless social interaction he sees all around him, but does not participate in. So the whole, I'm the only one here, is incredibly relevant to the character. It's interesting to have Roger Ebert say that that's the most important, or the truest line in the film. Taxi Driver is a, so it's a lauded film. Critics have loved it. Taxi Driver is one of those great films of, of all time. A disturbing film, a violent film. I mean, not a, it's not a real pick-me-up, but um, it's a it's a nice social commentary. It's a nice depiction of a character who's just completely lost and just desperate for some social interaction. So what I think is incredibly compelling about that to me is like, it's the centerpiece of the film. Mm -hmm. it's, but when it was, it's when he's practicing how to draw his gun, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who are you talking to? You talking yeah, to me? Yeah. It's and, and it's Who really. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah? yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's it's incredibly vital in the film. It's vital to the character, and it was wasn't written. No. It just came from the moment. That's right. And it came from, you know, and again, credit to Bob De Niro. Yeah. Uh, credit to Paul Schrader, the writer, who was like, hey, Bob, you know, have at it. Go get him. You know? Do it. C credit to you know, Martin Scorsese. I mean, a lot of talented people, obviously, put that that film together. Yeah. Um, but again, it's a it's a, it's a a testament to storytelling and, and, and writing and, and the, the camaraderie that goes on between all of those elements of storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, when we take a quick break, we'll come back for the last part of the show. Oh, yeah. Stay tuned for the this week's segment of Use Your, Your Illusion. Illusion. <laughs> hey, this is a stepfather from the Caveman Mafia. You're listening to the Night Story Podcast. For the kids at home, that's illusion with, 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 with an, an A. A. Uh, so for new listeners, this is the Use Your Illusion segment. Uh, for returning listeners, this is the Use Your Illusion segment. Hello. Uh, <laughs> so so the, the concept of the Use Your Illusion segment is uh, every, every week we talk a little bit about an illusion. Illusion with an A, as we like to say yes. here at Ninth Story. Illusion with uh, an A. Uh, the, the literary device that is basically a reference to something, and it's the the beauty of it is it helps you get the joke or get the reference. And uh, a lot of these things are things that we've heard millions and millions of times over, but we're never really sure where they come from. And since they're phrases and whatnot, it's tough to find in a dictionary, tough to find on the Google machines. Tough to find the entomology. That's of the exa phrase. exactly right. So not the ent not the etymology, because that's bugs. <laughs> I mean, we're that's talking about entomology, which is how a word or phrase came into right, being. Right. So for anybody who was listening last week, uh, we used the Coles to Newcastle. This week, uh, the phrase is pushing the envelope. A yes. phrase that we, we've all heard, we all use, we all talk about pushing the envelope in, in our daily lives in a variety of different ways, shapes, and forms. Um, the, the, the pushing the envelope, the phrase is used to express someone or something that is testing the very outermost limits of something. Yeah. What I thought it was, was the test pilots and engineers that tested aircraft performance. But there's a little more to it. That, that's exactly right. I, I think, I think 
I think we all know, or not, I, I guess I don't want to speak for everybody, um, but I think I knew pushing the envelope came from the test pilot. But it's a technological phrase that was, and I didn't realize where it came from, uh, where we first heard, got it into common usage. Okay. Uh, but it was popularized by Tom Wolfe, who we actually talked a little about earlier yes. with with regard to Mr. Leonard. And apparently Tom Wolfe is the guy who's allowed to use as many exclamation points as he likes. <laughs> right. um, so maybe in the book, The Right Stuff, which is the, the his 79 bestseller, maybe he used a lot of exclamation points when he was describing pushing the envelope. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I've never read the book. Saw the movie. Uh, great stuff. Um so as, as Dan just indicated, pushing the envelope in, in context is a term that was used by test pilots and engineers as they tested aircraft performance. However, the envelope itself is a term that is used in the professions of mathematical profession, technical, medical professions, etc. And it refers to a three-dimensional conception of the range of motion or the effective range of a weapon. Oh. So that's where the envelope came from and pushing the envelope means to go beyond what that it was exactly designed right. for that is that is exactly correct so it's something that was at its base uh origin and a very technical term that applied to basically matters of physics i guess you yeah. would say so it's like uh, when scotty gets a little bit extra out of the engines for captain Kirk. exactly it, but but to you know to that to that degree um how many times do you hear pushing the envelope how many oh. i mean uh, it's everything if you don't hear at least once a week i'd right. be surprised right so so that's the thing i mean a, a common phrase uh that a lot of people probably know how to use and know how to throw it into context yeah but tonight on the ninth story we're just shedding a little bit of light on where it first came from and what the hell it really means. That's right. Before we go for, for this episode, I stumbled across, if we haven't talked about it on shows, I know Dan and I've had this conversation uh, offline many times where, you know, Dan's truly a gifted writer and he comes at the writing and storytelling process from a different perspective than I do. He truly is a storyteller at heart. I've always been drawn to writing. And, nice things and, to and, say. And, well, I'm, you know, I mean most of them. <laughs> you know, you know, it's. I mean, almost some of it. Yeah, I mean, well, hey, I am a writer in that degree. <laughs> Dan, that was a great lung of bullshit. I don't know. That was that was my hybrid of Morgan Freeman. And <laughs> Morgan, that's what I was that was, that was it's Tony, like, it's like, Tony Freeman. <laughs> Tony Freeman. Morgan Hopkins. Morgan Hopkins. <laughs> I like that better. Right. Um, so I, I've always told Dan that the thing that really appeals to me is the art, the process of, of telling stories and what inspires people or how they get to a certain place. Um, so when I was doing a little bit of research for, for the last couple of shows, um, I stumbled across a great book or a great quote from Ebert's Roger Ebert's book. I hated, hated, hated this movie, which he dedicated. He must not have liked that. Movie. He didn't. He didn't like that movie. It, he didn't care for it. I'm not tell you what. I it mean, wasn't his favorite. You know, again, seen better. He he has. And and when when you're when you're a kid like I was who who grew up, you know, this I knew I was a dork at an early age when I was watching one of, one of my favorite shows was Siskel and Ebert at the movies. Oh yeah, uh, I love. I, I love that show. Too. And, and I think that's why. It's probably the, why we do this. I think so. And I think that's why in my life, 99% of the time, I'm a critic more than anything else. The thing that I loved about Siskel and Ebert is they were pissy bitches sometimes. <laughs> and they knew that. And they were self-deprecating and whatnot. But Roger Ebert writes a great bad review. Yeah. He, and his bad reviews are fun. So I hated, hated, hated this movie is actually a great read where he just trashes 
bad man. And a lot of the, and then they're big, they're big movies too. I mean, and he, but he takes a shot. And when Roger Ebert takes a shot at a film and tears it down, it's entertaining. It's, it's a good read. When that book had come out, Gene Siskel had just passed away the year prior to that in 99. And the book came out obviously a year later in 2000. Yeah. Um, but in the, uh, in the dedication, he has a line that says, uh, you know, I dedicate this to my friend, Gene Siskel, who liked to ask, is this movie better than a documentary of the same actors having lunch? <laughs> Which that's always, you know, that, and I don't want to say, yeah, that's the way I look at it, but that is kind of the way I look at things. It's, it's kind of how I, you know, is, would, would a book that I write be, would a reader say, is this book that Craig Weber wrote be better than me listening to Craig and Dan talking about writing a book? Right. You know, and that's- Which is more entertaining. Exactly. And that's kind of where I come from. It's that whole thing like, it's going to be a bad analogy, um, but in the movie Heat, the best part of that movie is is the scene between De Niro and Pacino where they're just sitting in the coffee shop. I don't know if that was any script. And everybody comes back to that. And and, and I often think of that. That was a three-hour movie. The best 10 minutes is just Pacino and De Niro sitting there talking. I could have watched that for three hours. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And I often use that joke. Like, that writer, if they, they just sat down and had a stream of consciousness and wrote their diary for that day, I would read that. Yeah. You know? Or, you know, if so-and-so got up and read the phone book, I would listen. Morgan Freeman. Right. You know, the phone book. That, and that's, that's kind of where I come from, yeah. you know, that's, and, and I just wanted to, I, I love that quote and, and just kind of wanted to share that with people because I think that that does go back to what makes compelling storytelling. What makes compelling writing is would I, would I rather watch these guys or read this or would I rather watch these two guys talk about reading or talk about writing or yeah. talk about performing? Yeah. Anyway. I think part of it, too, that uh, makes that scene great is, isn't that the first time that the two of them are on screen together? Yeah, it is. And, and that always threw me when they talk about that, because your immediate reaction is like, they were, no, it's not. They, were in the, they were in the Godfather Part 2. And they're like, yeah, but they couldn't possibly be in the same scene <laughs> because... De Niro is his dad. Exactly. Uh, and there's a little continuity thing going on. Unless McFly shows up. Hmm, I got a problem. But then unfortunately, you know, De Niro and Pacino did appear in a couple of things after he weren't so good. But. <laughs> uh, I know. Yeah. Better to leave the audience wanting more. Exactly. Than wanting less. There you go. The sequel to that is uh, the one where Al Pacino's the devil. <laughs> the devil's Keanu advocate? Reeves. Yeah, the devil's oh, advocate. Yeah, yeah exactly. Keanu Reeves. Ah, uh, Jesus. That's a that's a great piece of work there. Yeah, I hated, hated, Charlize hated that Theron. movie. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. Well, Charlize Theron is in it. She, well, yeah, see, that's really See, like, if you cut everything else out and you just have her scene, well, except the ones where she slices herself. You know, and I, I, I remember one of my friends um, saw that, and and I, I also, he, he made the comment, and then there, I also had a professional critic who, who made the same type of comment. The, the most troubling thing about that is, and, and nobody ever accused Keanu Reeves of being a master thespian. Um, he is immortal, though. Well, sure. Um, but he's supposed to have an act. He's like from Florida. He's Southern yeah. in that film. And in some scenes, he has a Southern accent. In some scenes, he doesn't. And once somebody points that out to you, yeah. you can't shake it. <laughs> Once uh, you see it, right? You can't understand. Yeah, so, it. so even exactly that's exactly right. So, even if you, even if you could go into the movie and think, 
Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it. I'm gonna hang with it. You know, Pacino's the devil. Yeah, Charlize Theron's butts in this movie, and Keanu Reeves. I liked him when he was saving that girl on the bus. Um, <laughs> I can I can hang in there. Once somebody points out to you that hey, pay attention because in this scene he has an accent, and this one he doesn't. And that sounds trivial. Sorry for anyone who's never watched Devil's Advocate. Right. But we've now spoiled uh, the entire yeah, movie. Come on. That, that movie's been out since like what? 1996. Yeah, it, it's like saying you have a spoiler alert for right. something that came out in That's 1972. Right. So for those of you that don't know, right. in uh, E.T. That's like me saying, hey, at the end of the Titanic, guess what? There's an iceberg. Uh, I don't want to ruin it for you folks, but. I don't want to ruin it for you, but Darth Vader is Luke's dad. <laughs> sorry for for sorry, folks. Right, Darth exactly. Vader's Luke's dad. He is, and uh, yeah, he's also James Earl Jones. Uh, right, right. James Earl Jones is Morgan Freeman's dad. Uh, now, nah, see, now you just now you've just gotten silly. <laughs> Um, I'm slap happy, man. You are. You're slap happy. Um, and is there is there anything else to cover before we fade to black? Um, roll it. Roll credits. Uh, uh, not that I can think of. Maybe we'll hear from uh, some listeners. You know what we should talk. Maybe about. listeners will tell us what they want instead, to hear instead of telling us what they don't want to hear. <laughs> uh, you know, instead of pointing out, what do you guys? You know, you asses. You know, you chimps on a Davenport. That's right. What do you guys? You know, you go on and on and on. You try to stay on a topic, and then you quickly get diverted off of that. And yeah, tell us what you want to hear. Tell us what you want to hear. Yeah, silence. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, hey, you know, if they want to hear silence, they can. Um, I, I'm I'm telling you, Dan, and uh, even money. I, I bet you're going to get a lot of people that are going to that are going to want to know what happens to Harry and Gary. <laughs> I'm telling you, you've Harry, scary Gary. You have you have uh, as an author, you have set the stage, my friend. You've you have wet the appetite. I will. Uh, I will. You you in two pages of breaking rules. Yeah. You, you have created incredibly compelling characters <laughs> that people. It's you. You've got the new. You know. Filling the void left by the demise of Walter White. Dan. <laughs> Dear Mr. Foydick. I loved Harry and Gary. <laughs> All is, right. That is so funny. But seriously, you may get a letter from Tony Hopkins. And if you do, you know, maybe we'll read it. Maybe we will. Yeah, because I could very easily see him saying... Y'all show his complete dreck. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that I would listen to, except I do. I've just finished a marathon. Your performance was, well, the worst I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, thank you, Tony Hopkins. Um, yeah, thanks. Brought to you today by... Uh, thanks to, you know, all the, again, uh, many thanks to the, the listeners. The followers. The followers. Uh, the leaders. That's right. <laughs> follow us and we'll follow you back. <laughs> and uh, and the... Uh, How does that work? Because like on Twitter, you follow, someone follows you and then you follow them. So like if you think about this, you're following each other. You're, you're just going in circles, man. You, you just blew my mind. <laughs> uh, I can't, I can't follow you there. I can't follow that line of thinking. Uh, so probably, you know, maybe it's a good time to tap out. Tap out. It's time, it's time to tap yeah. out. Hit the reset button, We'll put baby. that in Use Your Illusion next week, and we'll we can have Dr. Out. Towers explain to us tapping out. I think that's a good idea. I'm sure John could enlighten us, but John's going to be, uh, you know, oh, maybe he will we be a say, married man. He, he will be. You know, time. congratulations to Dr. John Towers congratulations. And, and, and the lovely Lori Brinker. We, you I mean, can't follow can't that. that. Yeah. You can't. Right. Cue the music and, and let's, let's, uh, let's ride on, baby. Good night, everybody. Good night. 
have been listening to the Ninth Story Podcast, a Hicks and Fabulous production. I broke it.